DWS News. Stay tuned for On the Money next here on DWS. The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gersh. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Yeah, good to be here. And I'm going to turn my uh, headphones up here a little bit. And certified financial planner, professional Ryan Repko, who works for me at, for me, with me. Yeah, it's whatever better, preposition right? you want today. With. <laughs> with. <laughs> good I don't morning. Get trouble at home. Good morning. Wealth Management. Good morning. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, morning, guys. Good be. Anything exciting going on? Let's see. I guess I had another grandchild, son David, who's on this show normally. He'll be back at some point here in the future, along with Ryan. And they had a little baby boy there first. Lived down the street, so you can imagine where I've been for <laughs> each day. And last night I had to go over at 9 o'clock, you know, to help give the first bath, or at least watch. Yeah. Watch is all I did. And uh, so you help out where you can. So congratulations to David and Amber on that one. And nine's tough for you because that's normally bedtime. <laughs> well, when my wife told me about it, I got to be honest. You know, I was watching a show at seven, and I go, "What?" <laughs> that's usually when I go to bed. Uh, I, I suffered through it. Uh, Fred, I see that job just came out today. Job openings in April soared to a new record high, with nine point three million vacancies coming out as the economy rapidly recovered from its pandemic deaths. Uh, set in April was eight point three million in March goes back uh so it's a lot of people yeah it's they call a, this is jolt's number i yeah. don't know see well, it's kind of a, openings something yeah. but it's kind of a strange world because we're in the, at the end of a recession and yet uh every place you go there are uh, uh for higher signs around people wanting to hire I, again uh i was someplace recently where the mcdonald's was uh, 17 dollars an hour plus educational benefits and and they're, you know, places closing. So, again, it's an odd, usually in a recession uh, with lots of people out of work. When jobs open up, they're filled very quickly. But now because of the impediments of the uh, various kinds of transfer programs, it makes it more uh, more difficult to fill jobs. Again, there's a good and a bad to that. The bad is, obviously, uh, some people aren't working because they have uh, benefits that uh, they're getting through the government. The good part is it gives people a chance to be a little bit more picky or a little bit more careful about choosing the job they want, which in the long run may be a good thing. Yeah, for sure. There's you know there's a lot more to pick through. You know you know it's not like you said in a normal recession, as we're turning around, people are glad to get any job at times. But right. now I think they can sift through them. Brian Westbury wrote an interesting article, kind of along those lines, and I thought this was good stuff, Fred. Uh, this was just, I think, in yesterday's Monday morning quarterbacking. So there's nothing normal about the current economy. Things our government leaders have done in the past year are unprecedented. And I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here. Using normal economic words and phrases to explain things makes no sense, as these things have never happened before. Um, he, he's, you know, he, I guess he, and it does sound like it at times where the government's taking credit for all this economic rebound. Uh, and there's, you know, attributing government spending uh for the current recovery, he says, not true. Yes, when the government borrows money from the Fed, which the Fed creates out of thin air or borrows money from future taxpayers and gives the money directly to people, spending goes up. But that's not real or sustainable recovery. I thought that was interesting. It's, you know, it's a lot of this sugar high. Um, he says, in the U.S., there's still uh, 7.6 million jobs short of where it was in February. So this is where it's really right. kind of strange. Yet retail sales, which fell 20% in the year, ended April 20th. April 2020 rose 51% since then and more than fully recovered. The only way this is possible is having the government borrow, print, and distribute money for people to spend today. Uh, it's true that reopening the economy from COVID shutdown is providing a boost of economic activity, but 
supply chains are damaged. Many businesses have been crushed. Never before in history has the U.S. government been so uh, big in spending money do it doesn't have. Uh, create spending, but that is not that that does not heal. Right. Uh, well, again, uh, if the government were uh, perfect, what they would do is to step in and provide the stimulus when the, when the uh, situation is uh, such that nothing can happen because of the shutdown. And, and then once that starts to lessen, they would then withdraw it, and you have this kind of automatic flow from the government support back to the private economy. But obviously, uh, no one, including the government, is perfect in doing this. So right now, I think a lot of people believe the the stimulus is is uh, due to be uh, truncated, but yet it's not uh, being done so far. So again, the, the real question is how do we transition back to uh, a more normal situation? And again, we always say, uh, someone who says uh, this time is different, we usually say, well, it's, it's probably not. But this time I think really is different because the uh, reason for the recession is quite different from anyone in the past where we had a complete shutdown of the economy, right. not, not because of uh, – oversupply or uh, weak demand or whatever it might be. And I think that's what kind of what he's saying is, you know, you can't really can't get out any of the old playbook books yeah. and uh, make comparison. This is the part I thought was interesting, and I'll, I'll leave this. In 1914, Henry Ford decided to pay his workers $5 a day to prevent a turnover. That was probably a lot of money then. Mm -hmm. uh, but also so his employees could afford to buy the cars they were making. Here we are in 2021, and the government is paying people not to work so they can buy things they didn't produce. No wonder there are shortages. Right. And that kind of makes sense, yeah. right? But we, the, the, we produce to consume, yeah, right? There's a, the good news of that is if, it, if it's actually true, uh, once the stimulus uh, stops, uh, people go back to work, then we'll get back to a more normal situation. So it's not so eventually that inflationary pressure will go away once the supply starts to respond to the uh, you know advent of new workers. And you know everybody's all uptight about inflation, uh, and you're seeing some year over year pretty high numbers. And I think yeah. we'll get a new print on on Thursday that would probably be the highest in a number of years. But they're coming off of really low bases, and so yeah. I went back and I looked at commodity prices. Um, you know, instead of just looking over the last year or so, if you look back over two years or three years, commodity prices are still actually lower than they were three years ago right. as far as the index of commodities. Sure. Some commodities are yeah. probably higher and much higher, but the, the right. overall index of commodities. So, well, yeah, and a lot depends, I think, on the uh, what happens with government programs. Uh, one possibility is that the uh, uh, – big infusion of funds from the uh, Biden administration was a transition measure to get us back to normal. On the other hand, if it turns out to be a, a kind of new normal where uh, it used to be most things are directed to poor people, if we now direct aid all the way up to uh, uh, the well, middle level of the economy, yeah. it's going to have a longer-term impact in terms of uh, willingness to work, things of that sort. makes me wonder, just out loud, guys, um, you know, we had a horrible pandemic, or at least – Conditions. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not going to debate whether the pandemic itself, I'm talking about closing down the economy, something we've never done, and in, in, in those types of things. Uh, you would have ex expected a much deeper decline in, for the stock market, but then with all this money, helicopter money coming in, I wonder if that, if that pretends a future where maybe we won't get these 50 and 60 and 70% declines in the stock market because the Fed's just going to come in and, like you were, like you were saying, uh, maybe in stimulating or not well, stimulating, but at least dropping cash yeah. in on and majority of people as opposed to yeah. But I don't think they can do that forever. Obviously, you go back to the old uh, bread and butter thing that uh, the value of a stock is based on its uh, you know, expected future earnings discounted right. back to now, and, and the government can't generate uh, future profits indefinitely through monetary policy right if they can generate them at all uh but just wonders if this were if we're now addicted to oh we got a problem let's just start you know sending uh, out money to yeah we may be addicted to that but i don't think it's uh probably a viable option in the long run in the long term yeah so i you know when i like i said when i step back on inflation and take a little take a little longer view of things yeah. I, I mean the fed might be right maybe this is transitory in nature uh, will end up to be that way. And then another part of me thinks, wow, a year and a half ago, I would have begged for some inflation because I was really worried yeah. about deflation. I'm sure I wasn't the only one worrying about right. deflation at the oh, time. Oh, they, they were too. Uh, yeah, and that, and expl I think people have a hard time, Fred, 
understanding deflation. <laughs> there have actually been periods when prices of things have gone down continuously for a number of years. Uh, is that harder to turn around than it is to curb inflation in your view? Well, I don't know. We don't have a lot of experience with that. And uh, deflation, in, in some ways, it shouldn't make a lot of difference. If wages are going down by 1% and prices are going down by 1%, you're still pretty much in the same position, just like a inflationary situation. But if you expect uh, more uh, price falls in the future, it may encourage some people to withhold. Why buy now? Why not wait till the price goes down even more? So those are kind of issues. So uh, again, I don't think they're, they're major ones at this point. I don't think anyone's waiting around for the price of automobiles go down or something of that sort before they buy uh, if you worry right. about deflation. So again, uh, and there is deflation and deflation and inflation and inflation. Uh, a 2% inflation uh, compared to the 1980s when we had 10 or 12% is virtually nothing. And we've, we've talked many times about the fact that we don't have a very perfect way of measuring um, the, the value of goods because of changing characteristics right. things of that sort. So some people argue that uh, we actually have uh, almost no inflation for a long period of time because all the things that become available and are not reflected in in prices. So an, an old example, which I think is not true anymore, that uh, it turned out that uh, the price of telephones was going up a lot because people were switching from landlines to uh, iPhones, but iPhone is not the same as a landline. So people were, even though they were paying more, they were getting a lot more back in, in terms of the uh, the services rendered. There are a whole bunch of things like that. Uh, the other issue is even more, uh, uh, I, I guess, confusing, and uh, that is uh, what's the value of all the stuff we get over the Internet? So I spend a lot of my time reading things on the Internet. I very seldom pay for anything, but yet there's a lot of value there. So, again, that's somehow not incorporated very very directly into the uh, measures of economic activity. Yeah, I always think about the free GPS on my iPhone. You yeah. know, what, what I would have paid for that, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But look at all the the financial data you get that is, I don't it's know whether free. it's free or not, but it's close to free. Yeah, it's and you would have paid, uh, you probably couldn't have gotten it to begin with. And you couldn't have gotten it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, so... Yeah, so inflation is kind of a tricky thing, but yet it's a real thing, and yeah. it, it you know it, it, there is a real component to it. I know you're not suggesting there isn't, yeah. uh, but again, adjusted for quality and technology and things that aren't even measured, uh, yeah. it's a yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a strange like, number to get your arms yeah. about. Other than but there you are know, things, yeah, obviously, you know, when you go into the grocery store, yeah. uh, day by day you don't notice much, but you know suddenly you can start feeling it and. Yeah in restaurants uh seems to be more expensive now yeah. than ever and probably needs to be uh for them to make any money but uh also to hire worker, workers they're obviously paying a lot more than uh they used to pay for yeah it was interesting uh, about one of the fast food rest restaurants in town and then we'll move on but uh about take someone was worried that they were closing for good and they said no they just <laughs> don't have enough workers right now right uh understand understandable in this day and nature um Gallup Poll did an interesting uh, survey, and it says jaw-dropping stats about the state of retirement in America. The average age of retirement in America is now 66, according to Gallup, which is up from 60 in the 1990s. Americans' living average of 78.7 years, 12 more years' time to enjoy life after work. Gosh, I hope it's more than that. Right. Of course, that's, that's you, you know, that this doesn't, you know, we're building financial plans. We're building, assuming people are going to live into their 90s. Uh, and I guess right. there's a 30%, a reasonably healthy married couple or joint couple, uh, you know, in their early 60s are probably going to live into their, at least a chance of one of them living into their 90s is probably, you know, one out of three or so. So you have to have a certain conservative nature. But when I see, that just struck me when I saw 78.7, I couldn't believe it. Um, but I guess... You know, you are dealing with averages. Oh, and, and your, your clientele probably is not the average of, yeah. in terms of longevity and so on. Yeah, so I always tell my clients, I go, you know, well, yeah, in, the more, in those tables, it's kind of you have coal miners and crack addicts and probably crack addicted coal miners are in there too. Yeah. So as you said, it probably doesn't represent my clients who have had access to health care and good high-quality health care, education, uh, quality food, et cetera. Anyway, of the 48... 47.8 million Americans 65 and older, the average income is $38,515. Uh, 
How does that strike you, Fred? Well, I'm not sure. Is that per person and not per family? The, well, it's if, a, if it's per person, it's, well, not that, it's not that bad. Yeah, it doesn't distinguish it. Um, yeah. Uh, and according to the U.S. Census, and their average net worth is 170000 Yeah. Um, I think that's more in line with married couples, joint yeah, incomes, yeah. is my guess. Um, but again, uh, obviously, uh, uh, compared to the rest of the world, $37,000 is a lot of money, but compared to the United States, it's not a very uh, – and you can get by on it, but it's not necessarily a luxurious lifestyle. So, again, I'm not sure – you know what whether this actually means a family but again that would be something and again i i, I assume a good portion of that would be from social security mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah i think something like of everybody drawing social security i think for half of those people it's pretty rough represents 100 percent of their income and you know that would be kind of tight yeah but the other thing which uh, i point out that sometimes isn't always welcome uh the average wealth of uh is $137,000, and the average wealth of a lot of people, not average, but the actual wealth of a lot of people is close to zero. Yeah. But if you th throw in Social Security and Medicare wealth, you're throwing in uh, $500,000, $700,000 yeah. right on top of that. So most people walking around, if they work during their life, uh, even though they have no savings, they have the equivalent of half a million dollars or so of, uh, of benefits. So what you're saying is, you know, to produce that, Fifteen hundred dollars a month or two thousand dollars a month, inflation adjusted, you'd have to have a pretty penny in Plus, order to even, do that. Even more with uh, uh, not free medical care, but uh, very low cost medical care. Right. So it's not as if even at, with those numbers, it's not like we're walking around destitute and yeah. in poverty. Uh, one of the things I pointed out is young people think they'll retire early until they're older. What about you, Ryan? <laughs> you're you're young people. Yeah. Do you even think about retiring? Uh, honestly, actually, yes. You're oh, what, 35? Uh, 35. I think about it not from the context of what am I going to do, but I think about it because like, I do this on a daily basis. So I, I kind of view myself through the lens of working with other people in, in the business. I don't think I'll, I'll retire early, but you know who knows? I think early is, you know, is uniquely defined. And this Gallup poll I thought was interesting when I read it too. It's, it's, it was questioning young age groups, 18 to 29. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> who at 18 years old, let alone maybe even a you know a college age kid in the you know early 20s, knows what you know they're going to do in their life, let alone retire. So I feel like that was kind of a funny but, age yeah. group. But, but eight, yeah, yeah, the 18 to 29 year olds expressed optimism that they'll retire early, closer to their early 60s. However, once they hit 30, Fred, that optimism wanes. Yeah, there's right. nothing like the reality crashing against the rocks. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there's kind of a period there. There's a a story about uh, not story, but a, a poll about happiness, and uh, uh, it turns out it's U-shaped. Young people are pretty happy. Uh, people from their uh, 25 to 55 are not particularly happy, and then people after that become happy again. I again, I think that. Middle group probably is is dealing with all the uh, issues of life, raising children, saving money for college, uh, worrying about your job. Dealing with teenagers, so, Fred. Yeah. Um, uh, more Ma Americans are planning for a longer retirement. According to TD Ameritrade, 81% of Americans are shifting assets in preparation for living longer, buying secured life insurance, and maximizing their contributions to retirement plans. guess there's no bad news there. However, see, many Americans are accessing retirement funds early. So there's a growing trend of uh, re Americans who are dipping into the retirement funds early. TD Ameritrade survey showed that 44% of Americans aged 40 to 79 have taken money out of retirement plan, while 46% of those people 40 to 49 have done so, and about half the people 70 to 79. Uh, usually comes with some financial penalties, but uh, sometimes right. it doesn't, but... I, it doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, again, my view of the world is skewed because most of my clients have pretty substantial assets. So sometimes you have to take yourself out of that world and then start looking at the average yeah. person and you realize that uh, sometimes you have to do what you have to do. But also, I think the uh, we, we haven't talked about this for a long time. There's something called a nudge where you try to uh, encourage people to do the right thing, but not make them do the right thing. And the nudge uh, was had been around for 20 years or so, but now the uh, 
the nudge is actually being incorporated into uh, legislation. So new employees to the university now are going to be forced into a, not forced in, but going to be put, put into an automatic retirement plan where they have to save a, a certain percentage of their income unless they choose not to. So I think my dad had a, something called the nudge. It was a paddle. And I think he named it nudge. <laughs> Those are the old days. Yeah. It's just a subtle reminder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was, well, he, all he had to do was whistle. It was interesting. You know, my dad, of course, he was born in 1916 and raised five boys with my mother and five boys in seven years. So we were packed pretty tight. And so he learned to be pretty strict pretty fast, yeah. I guess. Or maybe that was just his nature. But I always told people it was funny if we were all playing basketball on a court with other kids. And as soon as we heard that whistle, it was like, hey, where'd those kids go? It was like we disappeared like right. ghosts. Because that didn't mean I'm going to whistle twice. So that has nothing to do with anything today other than the old days. Not all Americans have retirement plans. I wasn't really sure, Fred and, and Ryan, how, what percent of people probably do. It's a 70%. This is a Transamerica Center survey. 77% of American workers are saving for retirement through employer-sponsored retirement plans. Well, that sounds good, but then you say, well, basically one out of three yeah. doesn't have one uh, without any real retirement. Um, Americans are dropping the ball on savings. You guys interject anything you want. Uh, despite 77% of Americans having retirement plans, uh, many people just don't have enough saved to actually fund. Americans between 55 and 64, this is interesting, median retirement savings was just over 107000 So I would say it's probably per person. Uh, so that's when clients or prospective clients come in and they're in their mid-50s or they're 60-ish. And they walk in with a half a million or a million dollars. I think they look down and think, well, I, I guess that's okay, right? You just yeah. don't realize how few people have that kind of money on planet Earth. Right, but if you, uh, presumably if you tell the uh, people walking in with $100,000 about the 4% rule, they're not going to go away very happy. Well, that, that gets right into the article. It says the Government Accountability Office notes that with that amount, the 107000 which may sound significant, would only translate to $310 a month monthly monthly payment if it was invested in inflation protected annuity now yeah. an inflation protected annuity we're used to you know just kind of lifetime annuity income streams you trade a sum of money a lump sum of money with an insurance company and they promise to pay you in some format over some period of time but let's just use over one's lifetime though they'll, they'll pay you the amount of money every month as long as you live and for most annuities that means you get the same amount in month one as you do month 30 but there are now inflation, uh, you know, uh, annuities, uh, immediate income annuities that do have some form of inflation riders. Most of them do not have, hey, whatever inflation is, there'll be caps. 3% might be generous. And from an historical perspective, most of the time, 3% is probably going to work out until it doesn't. Um, but you can buy those and, uh, you know, that's probably, it sounds about the right rate. You right, but, but if you have a do-it-yourself and use a... Four and a half percent rule. Yeah. You're talking about suppling your income by uh, four thousand five hundred dollars a year, which you know that's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money to uh, really change the the lifestyle. Your it doesn't yeah. change it fundamentally. You know, it's a little better, but you know, it is sort of the deal. Um, and I thought this was interesting. I think I was a little pessimistic, Fred. You can't count on Social Security. If you're counting on Social Security to fund your post-retirement life, be aware Social Security is only guaranteed to be funded through 2035, according to Business Insider and everybody else, for that matter, as far as that's me. Uh, but that's not even true in a sense. It's If it falls below, uh, so if they only click 90% of what they send out, you're, uh, according to the rules, they might reduce Social Security by 5 or 10%. But I think we all know that's not going to happen because of the political uh, pressure that would um, – Right. Kind of bear there. Yeah, prospective clients always come in saying, well, do you think I'll get my Social Security? And my answer is yes. Whether you'll get what is promised, I don't know, but it's probably going to be substantially uh, close to what they're. Right. That's my view. And uh, the lower your income, the more likely you are to get the full amount. Uh, if Correct. If something would happen, they might uh, make it uh, taxable or, or income condition, something of that sort. But for people who are living on Social Security alone, that's probably not going to change much at all. I thought it was interesting. Talk about things changing in a pretty short period of time. By 2035, the number of Americans 65 and older will increase from about 56 million today to more than 78 million. I think that's why so many people are getting pessimistic about Social Security. They're saying, well, wait a minute. It's just not going to be funded enough. There's not 
be enough people paying in for people drawing out. And of course, you, you read a statistic like that and you go, wow, <laughs> go from 56 million today to more than 78 million. There's a lot more people pulling money from the total fund, but fewer people paying. But, but if you look at the just the last year, the generosity of the uh, stimulus programs and unemployment, uh, if they're that generous in that area, uh, they're going to be even more, uh, not generous, but more careful about doing anything that would impact uh, retirees with especially, Social Security. Especially with this mentality that that many have now that is, well, borrowing, there's no consequences to it, and we can borrow whatever we need. Yeah. Um, which I thought, I read somewhere, I didn't think of this, but somebody said, well, if you can just borrow whatever you need, why do we have taxes? Yeah. Um, uh, is there a decent answer to that, Fred? I mean, no, but, uh, they don't I, really I, believe it? Or? No, the, the, the answer is you can do it uh, at certain times <clears throat> for certain periods, but you can't do it forever. And that's the, the, the question we always come up here, come up with here is when is it going to stop? And again, right. it's not, we're not going to go like this the last year or two. It's not going to continue for uh, the next 10 years, but we may be a situation where we still have uh, substantial deficits. So I think you, you, the, the fact is you can't do that forever. Uh, you can't even do it for you know, a, a long period of time, but uh, you can do it temporarily. And here's one that I sort of agree with, but I want to be careful on my agreement. It says you need more money than you think to retire. In order to keep living at or near your lifestyle while working, experts suggest you need between 500000 and a million saved in order to finance your retirement years. Uh, it's kind of a one-size-fits-all, but I think if someone shook me in the middle of the night, I don't know what you would say, Ryan, but you'd say, hey, if you've kind of been a middle-class person, uh, what kind of money might I need if it was today? I'd probably I'd probably say somewhere in that zone. For yeah. for many people, not all people, but for many people, that's probably a, um, you know, a reasonable concept. Yeah, and I think we talk about that. We've talked about it before. It always comes down to the person and what you need in retirement. So for like the average middle class person, that probably is a pretty reasonable number to give. But if you're someone who doesn't need much, who lives pretty simply, obviously you're not going to need that much. And mm -hmm. it, I think that number can, al can also be very like cutting onto the negative side in that, you know, if you're someone who's worked real hard, you've had maybe a, you know, a difficult labor intensive job, there's only so many dollars at the end of the day available left for saving after you just right. live and, and fund your just normal day-to-day -day life. That number is probably so inachievable, it's almost like, why bother? Why start? Um, so I think, you know, for, for folks who don't have, like, maybe the middle class uh, earn, uh, income earnings, that number is like, you know, it's a slap. You know, it's like, there's no way. Why bother? Yeah. yeah. But for someone on the other end of the scale, someone who's a high income earner and they only have Social Security, then you're, you're probably talking about several million dollars there to yes. maintain their lifestyle. So let's put some numbers on it. So for so if someone, what kind of, I would say, and by the way, I think that's a joint couple, by the way, for half a million to a million. That's a couple that's probably used to spending seventy or $80,000 a year, you know, by the time taxes and health care and savings comes out somewhere in that zone because you know only so much in my head i pretty much know how much is going to be uh you know taken care of by social security the rest is going to have to come from a 500 to a to a million dollars that's so that would be a, a, a couple that is enjoying somewhere around six or seven thousand dollars a month in after-tax spending and a lot a lot of people are going to hear that and say well wow those are rich people and and to some people they would be you take a joint couple that maybe is used to four thousand a month of take home spending and they're and they're spending it and consuming it, then you're probably closer to the four or five hundred thousand dollar range is probably what you would need today in order to achieve that combined with social security or or a somewhat modest pension. Mm -hmm. Does that seem reasonable to you guys? Like somewhere in the ballpark? Yep. So that listeners can kind of understand when we're right. talking about middle class and five hundred thousand to a million, let's I'm trying to put a little bit of number to it. Well, people might be surprised about how much they're actually spending, though. I mean, so if it turns out that uh, someone's spending $100,000, a family spending $100,000 a year, that puts them in a little bit different uh, situation. For, for sure, because as you mentioned earlier, the higher your incomes are, the less of your take-home income your Social Security is going to fill that bucket. Yeah. It's not going to fill much of that bucket. And so that then it starts to almost, I wouldn't say exponentially, but sort of you know, what you need to have saved by then. And, and Ryan, you mentioned, and I know, I try to be careful here too, um, 
it's 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 easy to have this belief and sometimes i have it that you know some people are just working class and they could never save enough because they're taking care of business they're taking care of kids but how many clients do we have that would have classified themselves as that basically lower skilled lower waged worker that raised kids that have six seven eight nine hundred thousand dollars and somehow, unlike the people working right next to them, because they began doing it, uh, there is one common denominator, they began saving early. And it's those early dollars that compounded the most times. And then the, uh, the other thing is, if you're going to start saving early, even when it's painful, even when it'd be really easy to consume, kids need stuff, right? Like swimming lessons, Ryan. You know, things like that. <laughs> or let's uh, say clothes. Yeah, Maybe even yeah, food. food. Yeah. Um, if you're going to save early, by all means, don't make the mistake of saying, saving it too conservatively. They don't, none of that money at first belongs in bonds. So the, probably the only chance that some people have, and maybe it's, a num- maybe it's a good percentage of people have, is start saving early and invest it properly in, in my terms is investing properly for retirement is a hundred percent in the great companies of america and the world this is i got to have a caveat i'm not telling people to go do this today that's what i would do if it was me yeah. it would be you know, low cost stock index funds in my retirement plan and i would just keep hammering at it every paycheck every time i got a raise at least one percent of that raise so if i got a two percent raise i'm going to keep 1% of it and the other half the other 1% is going to go and I'm going to increase my savings every month. I think that's about the only yeah. chance regular people, which is most people have in yeah. achieving what seems impossible to yeah. so many people. Do you encounter the opposite where you have people that had really high earnings in their life who haven't uh, gotten into the program and or yeah. you know throwing a, a divorce here and there and, and they end up in their 50s with not much aside from their uh, income. Oh, I see that frequently. Of course, we all know that things like that, you get a divorce and you know, that's a quick way to you know lose a substantial sum of your net worth. Um, but just probably the biggest problem, I don't know, Ryan, what you think is, it's just high, it's real easy. We all, I think you economists, Fred, call it multi- marginal propensity to consume. The more we wake, make, the more we spend. And when I talk to people that are just a few years away and they basically achieved the impossible, they never earned a lot of money, but they're sitting on enough money now that's enough, a substantial sum of money. So whatever you do over the next two or three years, do not build in more lifestyle and then you got it made. But mm-hmm. so we, it's difficult to sit across from the prospective client who's 55, has very little in savings, has earned a ton of money. Because they've earned a ton of money, they have a pretty high lifestyle. And you know it's outside of a lottery win or an inheritance. It's never going to happen. Yeah, and I I think back to some of the clients who I know who have what I would call substantial sums of money given how much they earned. And really it all just came down to a willingness to set aside funds and not to constantly spend the dollars that came in, you know, month after month. And for they did this for decades. And it's astounding to see what decades of compound investment growth will do for you if you just are diligent about continuing it and not interrupting it. Um, you know, it, I think it's always a lesson of like, wow, you can do a lot as long as you're just, you're diligent. I think if everybody, you know, so old Paul now, who probably didn't follow this, by the way, mm-hmm. it, you know, my advice would be, hey, if you get a job that pays 40000 just assume that it's, you know, 36000 take 10% off the top mm-hmm. and assume that they really just offered you 36000 and you have to figure out how, how to make it from there. Yeah. I, I, I tell this story every couple of years, so maybe now's the time to Fine. do it again. Uh, there, there's something called the Millercom Lectures at the University of Illinois where they, they uh, this fund uh, provides for guest speakers coming in, and it's been going on for years and years. It turns out that when uh, Professor Miller died many decades ago, uh, the department decided we, we need to take up a collection to uh, take care of the funeral expenses because he, he lived in a really modest uh home and a very modest lifestyle. And then when they got into the uh, will and so on, it turned out he had uh, uh, you know, millions of dollars back in, in, in those days, which is even more now, and they were able to fund this um, 
this um, speaker series for forever, I guess, in, per, in perpetuity. So, I mean, I realize there's a lot of people that live in tough conditions, you know, nothing like a new baby into a family, especially my son David is a new father. He was sitting here last, you know, not here. That would be weird. Hey, bring your baby to the studio. <laughs> um, as we were over there and my wife and Amber were giving the baby a bath, he goes, he's, he was talking about, I don't, not sure how much money. And here's a, re- a financial planner and a certified financial planner and he's saying i'm trying to decide whether i fund my 529 now really heavy and all that but we got into the discussion about just how fortunate that baby is just the luck of the draw and i'm not really talking about david specifically but you know you can be born in a lot of places in the world and a lot of places in this country where just the luck of the draw kind of shows up and uh so some people do have it very tough but Time and time again, people walk into my office that have earned very modest sums of money and learned to live on a modest sum of money. And because of that, they were good savers and were able to do it. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to make anybody feel guilty. Okay, we have a text. Let's see if I can get my eyesight going here. I've wanted to open a Roth IRA with money in my savings. Since the money is in my savings, has already been taxed once, will that money be taxed again? Or how will I know it won't be taxed again when I start to withdraw the money? So I can I can answer that. If I'm understanding the question properly, go yeah. ahead. So money you contribute to a Roth IRA is is contributed in a post tax world, so you don't owe tax on it. But there are different rules you have to uh, when you contribute the funds. Uh, generally, the account has to be open for five years to pull out anything, and you have to be over fifty nine and a half. However, there is a caveat uh, with Roth IRAs: you can always withdraw your contributions. So not the growth, but you can always withdraw your contributions into the Roth uh, tax-free because it was contributed after tax. So I think that answers the question. Um, I I think there's a slightly different issue. You you can, though, just say I have uh, $10,000 in my saving account. I want to convert that to a a Roth account if it's not uh, a, a traditional IRA or something, so you can't you can't simply go in and say I want to buy a Roth IRA. It has to, there are income limitations. You may have to take it out of your paycheck. Uh, a variety of things. You, you have to have earned income, so right. you can contribute up to the amount of earned income you have, or the greater of six thousand dollars if uh, you're under fifty, or seven thousand if you're over fifty, which is that slight catch-up provision. So you do have to have earned income, which right. is a great point to add. Well, his point is that. He wouldn't really be taking the money out of his savings and put it into the Roth. He would be taking money out of his paycheck and putting it into the Roth and then taking money out of his old account to live on. It's a, either way. I mean, let's it, say he didn't take it out of his paycheck. He could still open up a okay, Roth, right. take money, write a check yeah. from that savings. I read the question a little differently. It's already been taxed once. If it's outside of just interest stuff, if there's capital gains in it, you're still going to have to pay yeah. those capital gains until then once it's in a Roth, then everything you said. So I'm not 100% clear on that. Yeah, I was taking For instance, if I had $3,000 in an investment account, and now it's worth seven because it grew through growth. And now I want to take that money and put it in a Roth. First, I'm going to pay tax, capital mm-hmm. gains, potentially pay capital gains tax on that $4,000 gain. And then once it's in that, Roth IRA, then it's so. And that's the question. I, 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 I don't think I disagree, but I'm not sure I'm, I'm right. I think you actually have to report that as part of your income. So the money that goes into the Roth, whether it comes out of your income or what, it, it counts as part of your taxable income for right. the, year, the year you make the contribution. So I agree. Okay, what I'm okay. saying is to get that money out of that investment account, you're going to trigger some capital gains. Not the, the ordinary income. But anytime you put money into a Roth, I think we're confusing. Okay, okay. so here's what I'm saying: I probably injected a confusing theme. I don't have a Roth now. I have an investment account that's worth seven thousand dollars that I would ultimately like to fund a Roth with. Unfortunately, there's a four thousand dollar gain in that account. I have to sell that before I have the money to put in a Roth, and that's going to trigger a taxable event that's going to show up on your tax return potentially. Uh, that's the way I understand. That's yeah. kind of where I was going. I'm not saying you're wrong or right. I'm, okay, well, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to unconfuse yeah. the issue. Yeah. It probably made it worse. And the way I took it is the money's in your checking account, and, and that could and, and then, it's sitting in checking, and 
not invested currently. I want to open a Roth. So I guess so, it all comes so from the So maybe way the you real it. question was, hey, I'm tired of paying taxes. If I put money in a Roth account, is it tax exempt or tax free from that point on? What your guys are saying, as long as you follow the rules, right? And you have to have tax, you have to have income in order to do the Roth and you have to qualify. And if you earn too much money, you may not even qualify to do a Roth contribution. And, and then assuming, of course, you, you know, most people can though. You wait till age 59 and a half, which is that magical number. All the all the amount that comes out of that Roth, those distributions from the Roth account would be tax exempt because it's growing uh, tax free and it'll be coming out tax free as long as you just follow those as tax long as you rules. Follow the rules and it had been in there long enough. Mm -hmm. And once you reach 59 and a half. Okay, I think we, I, that's my fault. I probably injected too many. I should have just left you where you were. <laughs> Assuming that he just wants to put it in Roth, I'm tired of paying taxes, a Roth will do that. Just follow the rules. Uh, let's see, where do I want to go with this? Um, kind of along this retirement theme, I thought this probably going to surprise people. Despite the financial stresses that brought on by the pandemic, many of America's retirement account balances have swelled, in some cases to record levels, surpassing pre-COVID highs. Uh, that, in turn, is significantly expanding the ranks of 401k and IRA millionaires. Fidelity Investments, the nation's largest provider of IRAs, told Investopedia. Well, first of all, on its face, <coughs> just, we always go back to a year and a half ago. Yeah. You couldn't have imagined that that would be true. Right. Uh, uh, could be true. A average balances across more than 30 million IRA, 401k, and 403b retirement accounts reached record levels for the second consecutive quarter. Average 401k balances hit 123,900 for the first quarter. Average IRA balances reached 130,000 from a year ago, same period. And uh, average 403 balance climbed to 107,000. It's interesting, they're all pretty close to each other. Yeah. Uh, record number of people with at least a million dollars in retirement savings kitty, 365,000 401k millionaires. This is in their gazillion people. 307,600 IRA millionaires, both at all time highs. Uh, kind of astounding, isn't it? Yeah. It's this uh, kind of uh, bifurcated picture we get. You read how how tough it is to retire, and then at the same time, when you ask a lot of retirees, they say, I'm doing fine, and uh, it seems to be kind of a, a disconnect there because you would think, well, a lot of people aren't, re aren't prepared for retirement, but then once they are retired, they seem to get along relatively well. One thing I could say, when I got into this business in 1984, if someone walked in with $300,000, we thought that was a whopper client. And it's still a substantial amount of money, don't get me wrong. Now it's kind of more common that people do walk in with somewhere around a million dollars. It's not, I'll put it this way, it's not uncommon. And of course, there's a certain you know, selectivity bias there. These are people that are looking for people to manage, your, you know, help them with yeah. their retirement plan and investing their assets. I, I was kind of surprised that it was only 365,000 people. Now, this is of their universe at Fidelity. Uh, and I don't know how many. They have 30 million. So out of 30 million. So, okay. Uh, that kind of hit me at first. I thought, oh, that's kind of surprising. But then I had to circle back and say, well, that's out of their 30 million IRA, 401k, and 403b retirement accounts. Right. So out of 30 million people, <coughs> the number of people with a million dollars in the 401ks, it's 365, <coughs> excuse me, and on the IRA millionaire, it's 308,000 roughly. So still not a large percentage, mm -mm. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's still a large number. of. Right. This kind of goes with the, what I'm seeing day to day. It's not unusual for people to walk in, just regular people with a million dollars in their 401k. But you don't have to have a million dollars to be treated like one. See, that's like my commercial. This kind of surprised me a little bit, guys. 401k uh, withdrawals and loans were rare during this. Uh, part of that was probably because, Fred, do you think the, there was so much money that was sent out to people that maybe it stemmed that from what it might have been? Right, I think so. And then in addition, there weren't a lot of expenditure demands either. So the combination of the two probably meant that uh, people didn't have to withdraw. Uh, according to Bank of America, only 10% of its 401k plan participants took the CARES Act related distribution. That's where you could take out up to 100000 without the penalty and you have favorable payback options if you wanted. However, men withdrew 50% more on average than women. <laughs> so 
I don't know what that tells us about men well, versus women. Depends the size of the account, too. The men's account may, may have been larger. That could be. Uh, Gen X, yeah, it's true. They didn't say whether it was on a percentage terms versus dollar terms. Gen Xers, I don't know who that is. I know they're younger than me, pulled out the highest amounts, which kind of makes sense. You know, they're probably lost jobs and stuff like that. Um, retirement savers remain optimistic, Fred. Uh, six and ten said they actually boosted the amount they contribute. One in four reduced or stopped contributions. Uh, just one in ten workers who have saved for retirement say they've taken a loan hardship distribution or early withdrawal from the workplace retirement plan in the past 12 months. I thought that was I th encouraging, but yeah. then again, when you send out a couple trillion dollars or so, uh, you know, maybe that's what you get. Ryan, I know Paul did an article about basic Social Security strategies. Oh, it's been a couple weeks back in our News Gazette columns, and I mm -hmm. hope people enjoy those News Gazette columns. And feel free to email us at Rudy Wealth uh, if you have ideas. You also have the updates about all the financial yes. numbers. Yeah, I hope those are helpful. You know, I, I, I study those, and I, I'm constantly thinking, are there better you know, is there better data I could put in there that might be more useful? So I'm always looking for feedback on that, well, what there, people there, really would like to see in a nutshell. Yeah, there are very few places to get that in print nowadays. So if you want to actually read it in a newspaper, that's a good place. Yeah, but we know Social Security, as we talk about so often, does make a significant impact on people's you know, <laughs> retirement lives. Um, there's sort of as Paul's article basic strategies you know there's so you'll read that there's thousands of different combinations and permutations of how a, a joint couple might take it but it really kind of settles down to just a few but how do people you know possibly know at least even at the big picture which one makes most sense for for them yeah I, I, and I think this is one of those questions that applies to virtually everybody so I think it's really helpful that he wrote this article but it comes down to really just having three large or big bucket uh, ways in which you can claim Social Security. You can either both, if you're a joint couple, for example, you can both delay past your full retirement age. You can have one person claim and then one person delay, or you can have neither delay. Um, and so there's there's ways to, to change that in terms of the years and the months that you claim in between those big strategies. But those big three are really what it comes down to. So who would take, give me a scenario where you might consider where both people delay? Uh, if you both delay, you know, if you're both healthy individuals, the reason you would delay, of, of course, is you, you don't think that if you delay, you're going to forego earnings because you might uh, die prematurely. But if you're both healthy, you don't have any known conditions that might cause a shortened life, it might make very good sense for you to, to delay. And also, if you were maybe higher earners, um, you maybe have built up maybe substantial sa uh, savings of your own, like a 401k or IRA accounts, you can choose to live off of those accounts while allowing your Social Security benefits to grow. And as we've talked about many times before, the advantage of delaying your Social Security benefit is that you can get about an 8% per year benefit growth for every year you delay. So that maybe if you're an individual who would be able to retire and take full retirement age Social Security benefits at 67, and you delay for three years, which is the maximum you can delay, uh, that's 24% essentially growth in your benefit. Um, and that that can be an enormous differentiator in, in the type of lifestyle you can live because it's such a bigger payment than you would have received. Fred, uh, from a political economic st standpoint, is there any risk of delaying, you know, with Social Security, everybody saying, or many people saying that, you know, Social Security is sort of in trouble? Well, I don't think so. Again, uh, I don't think anyone, <clears throat> we're talking about what, uh, Eight years or something at the most, right? So I don't think there's any uh, big threat in the, in that kind of uh, period, and I don't think there's that, that big a threat in the longer period either. So take me through then the one person in a couple uh, delays and the other one doesn't. Who's yep. that kind of targeted towards typically? So if you have one person delay, you'd want to have that person who has the higher income in the in the couple. So again, keeping a couple perspective here. So if you earn more your benefit will grow more, and the advantage for that is by the time the person who earned more uh, reaches age 70, their benefit is the bigger growing benefit. And then at, uh, that person's death, um, presuming they die first, of course, then the surviving spouse would have the greater of their own benefit or that larger delayed benefit from their spouse who earned more. Chances are that would be a, a significant uh, enhancement 
for that surviving spouse to be able to claim that uh, passing spouse's benefit. Do you see it as a form of longevity insurance? In oh, some absolutely. Ways in that the surviving spouse now has a higher benefit than they might had otherwise for their complete life. Yeah, and I think we, we, we talk to clients and say, what are you most afraid of? Well, I'm afraid of running out of money or living longer in life than I had thought I would. And simply by having the option to claim later, if that's an option available to you, that addresses those two big concerns. And finally, it's probably obvious who, if there's a joint you know, a couple, uh, where they both might be apt to take it on the front end. Is that a, I just don't think I'm going to live as long as most people type of situation? C- certainly, if you know you have a uh, shorter life in the family or if the two of you have the event where you're both having maybe chronic health issue, um, cancer kind of events, then you might <clears> as well <throat> just claim those those Social Security benefits early and start receiving the benefits. Otherwise, they're, they're permanently lost. Yeah. If you can't replace the income, though, you might be uh, forced to do that if you're a... Right. Yeah. And then there's also circumstances where if people are really sensitive, they have a portfolio buildup, but they really don't want to rely 100% on their portfolio, that, that mm-hmm. might be part of that uh, situation yep. as and one, well. One thing we talk about a lot with clients is if you start out the mindset that I'm going to delay and maybe you're 67 and you think I'm going to delay till 70, that's not a permanent choice. You can always intervene and claim at 68 or 69 and you'll still gain the benefit. It, it's roughly... 0.67 or two-thirds of 1% for every month you delay past your full retirement age. So you can still gain a benefit by delaying even if you don't go like a year at a time, one, two, or three years. So it can always be a, a change decision later. So there could be a macroeconomic event and maybe your portfolio is down uh, more than your, you know, you really don't want to withdraw anything out of it. So that might be a reason when you say, well, we were going to wait till 70, but mm-hmm. now that we're 68, uh, we've still delayed some, but we're gonna. We're now we're gonna start taking Social Security, uh, kind of to alleviate the pain of watching the current conditions go on. Yep. And you know, once you've claimed it, of course, you can't change. So once you claim, the permanent decision is made. That's why if you can choose to delay, uh, you ha- you always have that optionality down the road. One thing's for sure: people are confused about Social Security. Right. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time on the front end. Basically, what we, we do, and then we'll finish up here. Is, we basically run through every major different combination of ways to take it at different time frames, and then it gives the client a very good picture of what are the trade-offs from the choices. So uh, I think that's going to do it today, guys. I appreciate you. Dr. Fred Gertz, thanks for joining me for Paul Rudy's On The Money radio show. And to Ryan Repko, same to you. Thanks for being on the show. We'll be back in two weeks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On The Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.